The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. It's time for a different take on spirituality for the modern world. Welcome to Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Hey there, welcome to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. I'm Jim Lefter. I'll be your host for today. I'm a spiritual journeyman, media producer type guy. I run a website with online courses called youthrivehere.com. I'm at the Center for Spiritual Living Greater Baltimore at CSLGreaterBaltimore.org. Joining me today is my rebellious co-host, Spiritual Rebel Sarah Bowen. Sarah is the author of Spiritual Rebel, a positively addictive guide to finding deeper perspective and higher purpose. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? Oh, Jim, living the dream. How are you? Every day. Every day is living the dream if we choose to. Right, Sarah? It can be. <laughs> You're differing from that? You mean it's not just all rainbows and kittens? And you, well, there's unicorns and puppy dogs too. Um, <laughs> I do feel like I am living a little bit in a dream world the past year and a half. So that word dream has, uh, has some positive and also some surreal connotations, I think, right now. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. Yes, it's, it's uh, definitely been a strange dream. I, I don't know if it's a dream or a little bit of a nightmare or I don't know. I guess. It is what we uh, we choose to make of it. So I have a question for you. Have you seen the show Good Omens with David Tennant and Michael Sheen? I have not, but is that based on the a book? Yes, it's Do based on the book by um, Terry Pratchett and uh, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I you know I haven't seen it. It's on my list. I had seen um, I had watched the American Gods series. Um, I haven't Neil, seen that yet. That Neil had done that I really liked. So so what is Good Omens like? Good Omens is um, about the end times and Armageddon, but it is hilarious. It is so well done. It is, um, it's quite offensive to some people, I'm sure, because it skewers uh, traditional religion. Uh, but there's definitely a spiritual core and, and a, a degree of logic in it. Um, you know, just as a side note, there were some people that were so offended by it that they decided to boycott Netflix and tell them never to run it again. But and Netflix said they wouldn't ever run it, which is pretty funny because it was actually produced by Amazon. So it was all kind of a, a very funny <laughs> boycott because they boycotted the wrong company. Uh, you know, I will have to put that on the watch list. I really think that we need to um, 
explore and poke fun at our beliefs and explore them and, you know, have, have some snark and have some critical thinking and at the same time revere them. I think it's both. So this, this show sounds like maybe I would get a dose of both of those things. I think you would. I think you would. And we've got uh, uh, Rever uh, Reverend, we've got Rabbi Re Rami Shapiro coming on uh, to talk about Holy Rascals, which uses a great deal of, of humor to talk about religion and uh, religiosity, um, which which I find very, very interesting. Um, one of my, you know, I love Good Omens, and I, I hope you like it. I think it's a good show. I apologize to those who were offended by it. But um, there's also my favorite book is by Terry Pratchett. And I, I probably have mentioned this before, but it's uh, my favorite fiction book is called Small Gods. And it's, it's actually, it's another book. <laughs> there's a theme here. It's another book that skewers religion and is hilarious. It, but it does have a very important spiritual core to it that I, that I really wonderful, I, I think is really wonderful. So I'm going to put that on my list too. You know, it's one of the things that I, I jump on my soapbox sometimes at the seminary about the fact that, you know, I'm spiritual and religious. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, I can, um, you know, be quite irreverent in my review of both. So the idea to not take ourselves too seriously and to be able to really poke at things and explore them. I think that most of our spiritual rebels and revolutionaries and holy rascals and all of that, that's what they did. Yes. Is they looked at what is the status quo? What is going on right now? And where perhaps have we gone a little off the mark? Where, where might we be holding and clinging to something where we've lost the original intent of it, intent of it. Where have we lost the love and the compassion and the service for others in, you know, something that we may be thinking about uncritically. So I really, you know, Jesus did that, Buddha did that. You know, we, we have all these, these folks who have come before us, uh, not creating Amazon or Netflix series, but perhaps that's our modern way mm -hmm. of really digging into uh, what do we believe and is it useful? And can we make sure that we're not just walking around blindly with our religious beliefs, but we're really thinking about them very carefully. And that's it. That's it. I, I think that's what the core is on the, on both these, um, the movie and the book is that it's not that it, it really is critical about blindly following faith, you know, blinding, follow, blindingly following a, a, a religious philosophy. It's not, I don't believe it's necessarily, you know, about, you know, the, whether these are valid or not, these paths are valid or not. It's very much about, you know, do you, do you critically think, you know, do you actually pay attention to what the core is in these, in these uh, religions and philosophies and not just at what you're told is, is supposed to be there and you're following direction. I think that's the really important distinction. You know, that's what ended me at an interfaith seminary was I really wanted to understand different religions in the world. And I had kind of a surface understanding of them, but I wanted to better understand the people in the world around me that had these different beliefs. And so rather than take, you know, that kind of comparative thing where we say, well, these people think this and that people think that on this very, very surface level to really look underneath, what are we trying to get at in religion? 
Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to treat each other better. We're trying to live in community. We're trying to um, self-regulate and have a connection to something bigger than ourselves. And it's in all these religions. So rather than just kind of say, hey, we need to toss the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, babies. Um, but that <laughs> <laughs> No offense know, intended I, to babies. I really, you know, talk about thinking critically. I may need to re-examine that particular <laughs> statement right there. Um, but rather than toss everything out, right? Where do we right. see the, where do we see the beauty in it? Yeah, and I think you know when I think of New Thought too, as a philosophy and everything, I, 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 I think it's important for us in in that belief system to say, you know, to critically think. It's not just walking lockstep with you know what you're being told, even in New Thought. You know, it's it's. I think it's about the personal story, the personal revelation, um, as much as it is, it is getting the wisdom from these philosophies too. Yeah, and I and I think it's also this can be scary. It, it can, can be scary be. to go back and to look at deeply held beliefs, and start to to question them. And so I think that's where spiritual community comes in, regardless of of what um, path you're following. Making sure you have people to support you, because sometimes when you start letting go things that have become foundational, or or adjusting them, or even doubling down on them, you know, there's some things you may find, yeah, this really still works for me. Right. To be have other people in that process, I think is really helpful. All right. Do you have a quote for today? I do. All right, here we go. What separates those who dabble in feel-good endeavors and those who actually nudge the world forward has nothing to do with intellect, connections, or specific skills. The ones whose actions and ideas produce positive consequences are the ones who stay in the game. Try, fail, then try again. Follow the thread as it unspools. Just start. Ooh, that's interesting. Just start. How important is that in everything we do? It is. That's Jacqueline Novogratz. Uh, It's from a book called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. But what I like about Jacqueline's work is she started a nonprofit. Uh, It's actually a capital fund that uses entrepreneurial approaches to address global poverty. So this is really walking the walk and talking the talk of it's not just about us feeling good, but it's about how we're uh, addressing the suffering in the world. Okay, well, as I look at it, I'm thinking maybe I shouldn't have (laughs) chosen this quote. But here, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, We must question the story logic of having an all-knowing, all-powerful God who creates faulty humans and then blames them for his own mistakes. Oh, I like that you picked that. That has a lot to do with what we were just talking about. Who, Who said this? This is Gene Roddenberry. Is that right? It's true. I stole it from Rami's book. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry. And if in case there's any listener that does not know who Gene Roddenberry is. There certainly can't be any listeners who don't know what, who, who Gene Roddenberry is. Is there really, Jim? We might have some Star folks. Trek. Star Trek. He's Yay, the guy who Star created Trek. Star Trek in the first place. Well, that, you know, that's very interesting. Well, I've just started watching Discovery, and there's a lot of theological questions that come up in, in that particular Star Trek as well. Good quote, Jim. Well, good, good. Yeah, I love Star Trek Discovery, too. I think it's it's wonderful. Um, the uh, It gets better as it goes on, I think. The, the later seasons get even better. Um, and I have to say, Saru become 
becomes one of my favorite Star Trek people. Maybe we even, may. maybe even right after Spock. Now I'm, I'm not sure. Right? I'm not sure, wow. but I, I think he really waits up there. I love Saru. All right, we may have to do an episode sometime where we talk about our favorite sci-fi heroes. And boy, won't people be interested in that. <laughs> and that'll be like a four-hour episode. So perhaps we'll just stick to Holy Rascals, Spiritual Rebels, and Ancient Revolutionaries. <laughs> for today. For today. For today. All right. Are you ready to go warp speed into our interview? Let's do it. Funniest thing guy, Ed Biagioti, joins us with a new segment. Hello, everybody. My name is Edward Biagioti. I'm the co-host of Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed right here on Unity Online Radio. It's a pleasure to be on Big Universe today to talk for a moment about holy rascals and the heart of religious teachings versus dogma. The thing is, for me, at the heart of all religious teachings is joy. The goal is joy. Sometimes this is forgotten. Jesus said, that the letter of the law killeth, but the spirit giveth life. If we try to practice the letter of the law, even if it's a spiritual teaching, without having the spirit, which is joy, joy is the evidence that we are in harmony with love, with life, with the universe, with who we truly are. That's why people who, whose hearts are ablaze with God, with love, with joy, turn into holy rascals, because now life the big joke is that we're supposed to suffer or that we're supposed to be serious about things when the truth is we are here to be loving. We are here to be joyful. We are here to laugh. We are to here to shine light on those around us because we are a light that is built to shine. That's my two cents for today. It is so great to talk to you on Big Universe and have a wonderful day. And now it's time for our interview. Rabbi Rami Shapiro is an award-winning author of over 36 books on religion, spirituality, and recovery. Rami co-directs the One River Foundation, is a contributing editor with Spirituality and Health magazine, hosts two podcasts, Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami and Conversations on the Edge, and a weekly Zoom talk show. He's an initiate of the Ramakrishna Order of Vedanta Hinduism, a 32-degree Scottish Rite Mason, and the 2020 recipient of the Houston Smith Award for Excellence in Inner Spiritual Education. Rami's also the author of Holy Rascals and Perennial Wisdom for the Spiritually Independent, among other books. For more information about Rabbi Rami, go to rabbiramiRAMI.com. Welcome to Big Universe. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. It's so if, exciting. If for no other reason to, than to give you words that are hard to pronounce. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it's wonderful to have a, uh, I have both a holy rascal and a spiritual rebel uh, on the same podcast here. I think that's that's pretty awesome. You're in for it, Jim. I am totally in for it, totally in for it. So I love your book, Holy Rascals. Um, Thank you. And, and you know, the, quest, the, the first thing I have to ask you, just because it's the start of a podcast, you know, what's a holy rascal? So a holy rascal is someone who loves religion too much to leave it in the hands of the professionals. <laughs> the, the, I, I look at, at organized religion, I call it big religion, you know, like big pharma and big agra. And there's such genius in religion. And then people F it up. You know, they just, they just take it literally. They screw it up. So a holy rascal 
is not anti-religion. The holy rascal is uh, a person who loves it so much that wants to bring the, the wisdom back into it or pull the wisdom out of it by moving beyond the literal and the parochial and the tribal. And so you, you say that two essential qualities, endless curiosity and boundless compassion. Tell me about that. So endless curiosity about what people believe. Uh, just the other day, I was hanging out with two Mormon missionaries, you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we have absolutely nothing in common theologically, but we're, the three of us were all human, and they were as passionate about their false belief as I was passionate about my true belief, or they were as passionate about their true belief as I was about my false belief. And I, that just blows me away. I just, why do people believe? Why do they believe what they believe? And what, how does what they believe impact what they do? I'm just, you know, a holy rascal is just really curious about all of that. And then infinite or boundless compassion is not judging them. I mean, there's no, you can't have a conversation with uh, people with whom you fundamentally disagree on big issues like God and, and salvation and all of that. You can't have a conversation if you're just going to judge them, even if they're judging you. So the, the compassion part is we're all trapped in systems that were not of our creating, right? We, we were born into it or we fell into a system, whatever it is. And our, the field of our vision is, is limited. So I, I just learned this new metaphor from, uh, from, it was probably coined in the 70s from Colin Wilson. And he talks about an 88 key piano keyboard and most humans are stuck on just the few keys in the center. Ah, yes, and we don't yes. realize. <laughs> and yeah, the sharp you're ones. Right. We're we can be a little bit lazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's all this other, and we're just totally ignorant of it. And so that's where the compassion comes in. You know, that, that people who are really, and I am totally committed to my, I don't use the word belief normally, what I, what I experience to be true, I am totally committed. There's no way you're going to shake me out of it. But I know there's more to my, to, to experience than what I've been able to experience, you know, so far, there's more to, to human consciousness than what we normally uh, tap into. So you have to have compassion about all of us being trapped. What do you mean by trapped? Well, being stuck with the center keys and not being able to go beyond it. Uh, the work that's required, the contemplative work, you know, the spiritual work that's required, the meditation practice that's required. Most people don't want to do that. Um, I mean, I, I've been meditating since I was 16. I mean, daily. And I'm not a fanatic about it. I just like doing it. And, but most people aren't going to be committed. To, they're not going to make that commitment. And, and I personally didn't make the commitment either. I just learned it and liked it and stuck with it. But to pick it up and say, okay, I'm going to spend... I mean, even if it's just 20 minutes a day, the word just doesn't really apply to a lot of people's lives. They haven't got 20 minutes and they don't really see the benefit. So um, without, now this is maybe not provable, but just my sense of things, without commitment to a serious mind expanding contemplative practice, 
I think you're stuck on the center keys. Now, I know from Michael Pollan and other people and, and Ram Dass and Timothy Leary, I mean, I'm old enough to, to remember all these, you know, these guys. I have no idea who those are, you know, I'm yeah, too young, right. I'm too young. Jim, but- Jim, your nose is growing again. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there, I mean, there are drug-induced ways of doing this too. Uh, I, and, and sorry, you can look closely, my nose won't be growing. I have absolutely zero drug experience. I tried marijuana uh, in, in high school twice. Uh, it's nothing like the marijuana we have today. So I'm told it's very weak, but I tried it twice in high school. The only impact it had on me was to make me hungry. And I'm in OA, Overeaters Anonymous. The last thing I need to do <laughs> is to engage in anything that makes my eating even worse. So I have, I have no drug experience. I went the Buddhist route in, in my high school years, but I'm told, and I trust uh, that there are medicines, you know, meaning ayahuasca and other kinds of things that can do the mind expansion. I was going to say do it for you. Maybe that's not the right way to phrase it, but there, there is a way to access the rest of the 88 keys through these uh, sacred medicines. The problem I have with them, and it's theoretical because it's just through reading, is what Ramdas taught. It was you, you, you get to these incredibly sublime heights and then you have to come down because it's you know wears off and then you right, have to do it again yeah. and it wears off right but he claims and this is not my experience but I, i'll trust him he claims that there are people out there who can get that they can play all 88 keys all the time hmm. through their meditation practice so it's interesting one of the underlying assumptions of of spiritual rascals is um Holy rascals, now, I'm now, sorry. I'm, I'm just going to say, <laughs> we're conflating us, we're Sarah? confusing you. <laughs> One of the underlying assumptions that I'm, I'm interested in talking about is, you know, that brand name parochial religions are concerned with their respective truths rather than perennial wisdom that's that's at the heart of, of religion or of spirituality. Well, what do you mean by brand, brand name religion? What does that mean to you? So brand name religions are Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Each of them has myriad sects within them, but they all come with fixed assumptions, uh, some sects holding it one way, some another, but just speaking in generalities, they all come with fixed assumptions that are their lowercase t truths. So for example, and they're committed to them. So for example, you know, I'm Jewish. I was raised in an Orthodox home. I was taught that the Jews are God's chosen people and God didn't choose anybody else, only the Jews. And we were chosen, I I know like in modern times, people say, well, everyone's chosen, but that's not what it meant. I mean, we were chosen, you weren't, nah, 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 right? I mean, that's how that, that's really what it means. And that we were chosen to receive God's one and only revelation, you know, Torah, and the deed to the promised land in perpetuity, regardless of who was there before we got there or who was there after we were kicked out. That's a non-negotiable set of lowercase t truths in Judaism. Absolutely incompatible with Christianity or Islam or or any other religion. You know, Christianity, so so Jews, for example, just to stick with that example, that, that, uh, you know, this example, Jewish theologians, rabbis, will never discover that the Ethiopian people 
are God's chosen people, even though Rastafarians claim absolutely they're God's chosen. Well, Jews are never going to come up with that idea. Uh, just like Christians are never going to come up with a trinity that isn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're not going to go, oh, you know what? It's, we were mistaken. It's really Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. I mean, they're just not going to do that. So each of these brand name religions has its frame, its lowercase t truths that it is willing to both have members die for, right? If you have a religion that likes martyrs or have members kill for, you know, for the same reason, right? Martyrs are, are elevated. I die for my religion or I kill for my religion. Any religion, it seems to me, that's, that even in, that encourages you to kill for it or die for it, I would run from it. I mean, that's just, you know, ridiculous. Um, so that's big religion. That's brand name religion. At the heart of every religion, the brand name religions, at the heart of them, though, the mystic heart, the mystics go beyond the parochial. Not, not in theory, meaning they don't take the theology of their respective faith and then massage it into something else. They experience something else. And out of that experience, they come they begin to play all 88 keys of the keyboard. And so they can no longer be locked into the, the parochial nature of the brand name religion. Doesn't mean they leave it necessarily. It just means they completely um, reinvent it from the mystical inside out. And that, that again, I think is what Holy Rascals uh, is about. Uh, there are oftentimes mystics who are you know, reinventing their own tradition from the mystical experience out the experience that they all have is what I call perennial wisdom. And it's real simple. If we got enough time, it's four points and I can run through them in less than a minute. Go for it. So the first point of the four points of perennial wisdom, every life is a manifesting of a singular non-dual, really a non-dual aliveness called by many names, God, Brahman, uh, Dharmakaya in Buddhism, Tao, mother, spirit, nature. I mean, there, there's so many names that humans have invented for it. But everything is a manifesting of this one thing, just like every wave is a manifesting of the same ocean. That's number one. Number two, human beings have the innate capacity to awaken in, with, and as this aliveness. You can do it through meditation, through chanting, through uh, you know, the, the sacred medicines. There's lots of ways that people have discovered to realize their truest nature as a manifesting of this non-dual aliveness. Number three, when you awake in, with, and as aliveness, you are called from within to live in alignment with the golden rule and in, uh, in your mission, your ethical mission is what it says in Genesis 12, verse three, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all of them. Mm -hmm. and, yes, and yes. And then the last point, the fourth point is awakening uh, to this, the, the, the truth of aliveness and living uh, to be a blessing through the golden rule. That's, those two things comprise the human being's highest calling. That's why we're here. That's what we need to do. And that's perennial wisdom. And every religious tradition teaches it when you study the mystics, but not the, the middle management <laughs> or the upper management people of big religion. They, they're, they teach you something else. Interesting. That, that's so fascinating. Well, we'll be right back on Unity Online Radio with Big Universe. Big Universe. 
You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to a slightly off-kilter look at spirituality. This is Big Universe with Jim Lefter. Welcome back to Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Rami, you said that you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish household, and but you also explored Buddhism and Hinduism. And how did you follow that path, or what brought you to that path? And you know, what brought you back? Or not necessarily back, but what made you become a rabbi after the, after going through these processes? That's just a simple question. I know. Yeah, well, actually, it's it's not too difficult to answer. Uh, you know, like I said, I raised in this Orthodox home. It made no impression on me whatsoever. It was completely externally oriented. None of our rabbis and certainly my parents had no idea and no interest in the deeper mystical things that I was interested in. But two of my high school teachers got a grant to go to India one summer and came back. And during my junior and senior year of high school, they taught what they called Asian civilization which was Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Confucianism. And I just fell in love with this stuff. And when I went to um, you know, get my, my undergraduate degree, I mixed time doing Judaic studies in Israel and studying Buddhism uh, my junior and senior year. And then I went off, my intent was to become a PhD in Buddhist studies and teach Buddhism. And I was at a Zen Buddhist retreat with Joshu Suzaki Roshi and one of many gurus and Roshis who ended up with all kinds of hashtag me too problems and, and mm, pretty, yeah, pretty serious bad. problems. Yeah. But uh, I never knew that at the time. And I don't think, I mean, to be blunt, the teaching and the teacher are two separate things for me. So I, I've learned a lot about Zen and I learned nothing about being a, a mensch because he, I guess he wasn't. But anyway, uh, he was informed by my uh, undergraduate professor who was his English language translator that I was planning to go to graduate school in Buddhist studies. And he took me aside at one of these retreats and he backed me up against a wall. He got very in my face and he said, you can't go to graduate school. He says, if you want to know Buddhism, you have to go to the monastery. He said, you come back with me, you go to the monastery, you learn Japanese, and you'll study Buddhism on the cushion, not, you know, in the classroom. And I knew I didn't want to do that, but that's all I knew. <laughs> and I, what, what came out of my mouth, literally, my back against a wall, this guy I loved and deeply respected, telling me to come to the monastery. And I said, Roshi, I can't do that. I'm going to rabbinical school. I'm going to be a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to myself going, what? No, Where did that come from? <laughs> Where did that come from? So then he says, oh, be a rabbi, be Zen rabbi. I said, okay, I will be a Zen rabbi, <laughs> but I'm not going to the monastery. I mean, I'd actually visited, it's at Mount Baldy outside of LA. I'd, I'd been there and I knew I wasn't going to live there. I need a place with you know, hot and cold running water, flush toilets, air conditioning. I, I'm, I understand I'm, this very well. <laughs> I'm a pampered Buddhist if I'm a Buddhist at all. So, so that was when the idea came into my head. And when I went to grad school, I lasted in the Buddhist studies program less than a week because he was right. It was completely academic and nothing I was interested in. And I found a 
professor of Judaic studies who was willing to work with whatever I wanted to do. So I got my master's in that and then went off to rabbinical school to be a Zen rabbi. <laughs> you have a, you know, you said that at one point you're interested in, in religions and, and philosophies. You know, your mom actually came into your room one night and asked if you were the messiah wow that's that's pretty interesting tell me about yeah, that yeah. my if you went into my room in our house my room was filled with books i would go every saturday after the synagogue i i would i would make my way to the bookstore and even though it wasn't what you're supposed to do i would hang out at this incredible used bookstore uh, johnson's used books and I just had all these books about religion and philosophy in my, in my room and, and no one else in my family even read other than the newspaper. And so I was really the odd, the odd person out. And then one night I was reading late at night under the covers and my mother walks in and she sits on the edge of my bed and with all sincerity, I mean, she was serious. She thought, I mean, in, in her worldview, Anyone who is this steeped in spiritual stuff, all she could think of, well, he must be the Messiah. You know, I mean, maybe she was already figuring out how to get on Oprah. You know, the the I'm the Messiah's know. mom. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm the Messiah's mom. And get, get, she could have her own, her own podcast. But this was, you know, decades ago before all that. So unfortunately, and this is my, my biggest regret, I lied to her and I said I wasn't. Hmm. <laughs> I should have said, yeah, I am the Messiah. Uh, now, now what are we going to do? Right. But anyway, I, I told her that I wasn't. And, and she cried. It was, we both, I, I cried because I made her cry. And she cried because I ruined her future contract with, uh, you know, NBC or one of the other networks. <laughs> so have, have you ever gotten flack from family, friends, associates for all these different paths that, you, that you've been on? followed through my on. dad never understood what i was doing yeah yeah my dad never understood. he never understood when i became a rabbi because i didn't become an orthodox rabbi i went uh. to the reform seminary and when i told him that he blew a gasket you know he had a fit and you know he, he neither one of us i'd never been in a reform synagogue i had no idea what reform judaism was i just knew that it, basically it was loose enough that i could do what i pretty much what i wanted to in my studies and so I told him and he got really angry and he said, you can't do that. It's a church. And, you know, I said, well, I, I've been, when I was in Israel, I had studied with uh, this professor from, from Hebrew Union College and I just really loved what he had to say. And, you know, I went for academic reasons, but my dad didn't understand it. My dad has, I mean, he's deceased now, but he never read a single one of my books. Uh, I tried to get them a subscription to spirituality and health magazine, and he refused to let me do that. Didn't want, you know, who knows why? I mean, I know that I've been told by some that he was just intimidated. He thought he couldn't understand anything I wrote. Maybe that's true. I barely understand anything I write. But <laughs> the magazine stuff, I think, is pretty accessible. So he was very unhappy. But, you know, outside of that, most people don't even know I exist. You know, it's not like, you know, I'm a threat to anybody. When yeah. I graduated seminary in 1981 and I was moving to Miami, Florida to start a synagogue, I'd been an Air Force chaplain at Homestead Air Force Base just for a temporary duty one summer. And I met people and they wanted to start a synagogue. So I, I said, oh, let's do that. 
when I when that was public that I was coming to Florida, there was a reform rabbi in Miami who was very much opposed to anything I was teaching, hmm. and he tried to get this the uh, reform movement to keep me out of Florida. They couldn't do that, but they wouldn't let me join the reform. My congregation couldn't be part of the reform movement. It hmm. never was. It still isn't. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Because I was too, they, they felt I was too radical. So that brings up a really great question, which is, you know, the specifics of all of our stories are different, right? The, the places and the people and the communities, but there is this um, shared narrative sometimes or this shared experience, I guess, that we have stress when people outside don't quite understand what's going on with us inside with our spirituality. And do you have any recommendations for people on, you know, how do you work with that kind of thing when people around you just don't get you? How do you suggest people work with that? Well, I think it goes back to the notion of curiosity and compassion. I think you have to be, rather than be concerned with let me explain what I believe to be true, if you're going to use the word belief, or let me explain my experience, which is a better way of phrasing it. Instead of doing that, if I was going to have a conversation with people who didn't get what I was doing, I would, be, I would shift it to what do you, what do you what's your experience uh, and see what, what we can work with you know, when they talk about their sense of the sacred, if they have that. And then the notion of compassion, that's the curiosity part. The notion of compassion, what I ended up doing, uh, just to give my father as an example, because he was, the, the, our relationship for much of my life, most of my life, uh, was quite strained because I was so not what he wanted, I guess, in a son, uh, was to use the Buddhist metta meditation practice, M-E-T-T-A, loving kindness practice. Susan uh, Sharon Salzberg has a great book about that. Um, Pema Chodron writes about that. I mean, I've written about it in. Uh... You have a great book on loving kindness. Thanks. It's right behind me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, to, to again realize that people are conditioned to be who they are and to, to have a meta practice where the way I was taught to do it is you. I'm going to say you pray for the person, but prayer is probably the wrong word because it's so loaded. But you you send out blessings to the person. And the way I was taught to do it is you say, you know, I would say to my dad uh, silently, I wouldn't say it to his face, but I would say, um, may you be free from fear. May you be free from compulsion. May you be blessed with love. May you be blessed with peace. And I did that for him. My experience was that well, I, I was going to say my experience was it changed our relationship. I don't know. It changed me and maybe my, that change in me changed the relationship that we got along better. But there was a point where my mother went pretty much deaf and we could no longer communicate over the phone. So I had to talk to my dad and I called every week and I was using this meta practice. And at some point I could say with integrity, you know, with true authentic feeling, you know, I love you. And he responded the same. And I credit the shift to meta practice. Mm. I said meta at his bedside, right up to the, just before he died. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it was my, my way of, of dealing with his death and helping him deal with his death. I think meta practice is a very, very powerful thing that, that has been 
I guess you could say lifted out of the Buddhist tradition and made available in a much wider, um, to a much wider audience. And, and if anyone needs to deal with those stressful kind of situations, check out uh, meta practice in, in any of these different forms and, and take that on. It's very simple to do, and I think very effective. I think I need to. I need to learn. I, I continue to learn. I should say that. I, I can reach people where they are rather than impose on them. You know, I come across something and I think, oh my gosh, this is great. This would be great for my sister. She'd love this. This is part of it. And I send her a book and she's like, why are you send me this book? <laughs> and so I, I think it's, it's a lesson to learn um, when you're talking about working with, with communicating with other people and, and, and the Mormon folks that you had conversations with that you're not there to change other people necessarily. You're there to, to help and be compassionate and be, be a part of life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not immune to being drawn to helping, uh, especially when I talk to people, let's say like Catholics, uh, I, I teach or I did before COVID at a number of, uh, Catholic retreat centers. Now they're open to everyone, but the, the center itself is uh, associated with Catholicism. And I meet all these Catholics who have no clue about the spiritual, mystical, perennial wisdom roots uh, and, and, and offerings within the Catholic tradition. Because they're taught the way I, they're taught Catholicism, the way I was taught Judaism, just the surface. And I will recommend to those people within their own tradition you know, have you ever read Father Thomas Keating? Have you ever read uh, The Cloud of Unknowing or, you know, any of these amazing um, uh, books, but, but I was thinking of Julian of Norwich or Hildegard of Bingen, these great women mystics in the Catholic tradition that have been there for centuries, but most, Catholic, most Catholics don't even know what you're talking about. So if you can bring them material or at least point them in, in the direction of material that speaks to their upbringing and doesn't say you know it's not like yeah catholicism sucks become a buddhist right. that's not gonna work <laughs> right you can say, oh you're so lucky to be a catholic look at the richness of your tradition mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that's a really important point I, I often think about it like being a tour guide rather than trying to fix someone to try to say, hey, did you see that stop? Did you miss that out the window? These right, kind right. Of different, um, these different things. But I, I appreciate, Rami, where you're going there, because sometimes the narrative that's happening right now, yeah, especially among folks who claim spiritual but not religious as a title or who are not affiliated with a particular um, spiritual community, is all religion is bad. And it, and it creates this, this tension where the people who are within that tradition, who are, who are um, being fed and being of service and finding it useful for their life, now have people telling them that there's something wrong with something that's very meaningful to them. So I find a, a tension in how we talk about um, how we talk about religion. Do you come up against that at all when you're when you're speaking in um, Catholic retreat centers or, or places where, you know, how do you uh, navigate that tension between expansive spirituality and people who are quite at home within a religious uh, house of worship? Well, what I find is that. Even people who are, I mean, I like people who are quite at home with their religion. 
because then we, it, if I know anything about the religion, and luckily I've studied a lot of these, I, I enjoy uh, showing people, just in a conversation, I don't mean like, you know, didactic, but looking at the texts of their tradition and showing them dimensions or revealing dimensions of that text that they had not thought of. So mm. if you have time, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was leading a interfaith journey for spirituality and health magazine to what they called the Holy Land, Israel, Palestine. And one of the things, you know, we were Jews and Christians and, and uh, you know, Catholics and Protestants, and there were supposed to be Muslims on the trip. And at the last moment, the Muslim uh, family got a, the guy got a promotion and they had to go move and do something else. So, but, but our, our, um, the group was quite ecumenical. Anyway, we were at the garden tomb where the, the Episcopal church runs the place. And it's where Protestants think Jesus was, was buried. And your guide is not allowed to, to lead a tour your guide has to stay in the guide house and their own missionary guide takes you around. And he, he was very honest. The guy started out saying, you know, this is the one talking about Episcopalian, you know, Anglican, he was there British. So, and the Anglican faith. And he, and he basically said, this is the one true faith. And if you want to become part of it, I'm, I'm happy to do that, you know, while we're on this tour. So anyway, we're walking around and he's making all these comments, derogatory comments about Catholics and about Muslims. And, and I, I interrupted him and I said, you know, this is, this is not who we are. You know, you can't, but he didn't, he didn't get it. He didn't care. Anyway, I realized there was a lot of stuff I could talk about with him and I, but I'll skip that. I realized that if I stuck, if I stuck with the tour, I would just be a pain in the ass of this guy and nobody would have a good, good time. So I'd been there before. I didn't need the tour. I said, look, I'm just going to go and meditate in the corner. And he took them through the garden. And I found this beautiful place to sit. And I, and I was doing my meditation thing. And while I'm meditating, I hear this woman's voice. Now, I've, I, I hear voices. I hear a woman's voice, not all the time, but I've heard it a, a number of times. And I hear this woman's voice. And she says, are you the rabbi? So in my, <laughs> in my egoic mind, you're going, Yes. Yes. Goddess, <laughs> I am the rabbi. You know, it's, I, I told my mother I wasn't, but I am, you know. So I opened my eyes and it was another Episcopal or Anglican tour guide. And she had heard the exchange between the other guy and myself. And she said, I'm going to ask you a question. And she, she tossed at me what's called C.S. Lewis's trilemma. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But during World War II, C.S. Lewis, the great author, theologian, did a radio show for BBC to keep the people's spirits up uh, during, you know, the, the blitz and all, all the stuff that was going on during the war. Anyway, he invented this thing called the trilemma. And it's this, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, is Jesus lying? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? So those three options, that's why it's called a trilemma. And the assumption on Lewis's part was nobody would say Jesus is a liar and no one would call Jesus a lunatic. So you have to accept the third and we would all go, oh, you're right. He's Lord. Therefore, I become a Christian. So she, she said that to me. What do I think? And I said, well, I reject 
the premise. I think there's a fourth option. And she clearly had never heard anyone say this to her before. And she was stunned. And she said, well, what's the fourth option? And I said, when Jesus uses the word I am, he's, you've got to remember he's Jewish. And in the Judaic tradition, he's speaking of the Echia, the I am, that is the ultimate revelation of the divine non-dual happening of, of the universe. He's, he's realized that he is the divine, just like every wave is the ocean. And he says, you know, I am this, this oceanic consciousness is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the divine except through this level of consciousness. Mm. And that's what Jesus was bringing us. Right. And you could see she was such a, a, a really fine person because she didn't reject what I had to say. You could see she thought about it for a moment and said, I, I have to think more about this. And she walked away. So that's a long answer to your question, mm. Sarah, that, that um, if you can work with the material that, that, they, that speaks to them already and show them legitimate ways of, re, of under, you know, understanding it differently, you can have amazing interactions with people. That's wonderful. I want to just, it's we only have about- Beautiful, beautiful way. Thank you. Yeah, Absolutely. We, we only have about five minutes left and I want to get to the Holy Rascal Manifesto. Um, religiosity, making meaning of the raw facts of human existence, brand name religions, violence. Tell me, can you sum up that, you know, in just a short time? <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> I mean, Everyone has to buy the book, Jim. Yes, Everyone exactly, has to buy the book. Exactly. <laughs> That's how we sum it right up. <laughs> but but I think, you know, if we're looking for, um, you know, a really brief, succinct manifesto-like statement for this, it's that um, all religions are pointing in, the mystic heart, all religions are pointing in the same direction. And you don't have to change religions. You have to go to that mystic core, get beyond the marketing BS of the brand name part of the religion. Go to the mystic core. You can see where it's pointing. And then you have to go where it's pointing. And the actual journey to that realization always takes you through and then beyond any religion. And that's the ultimate goal is not to give up your religion. It's just to go beyond it, to experience the universal reality. And then you can pick up your religion as a language and use that language to articulate your experience. You have a lot of uh, fun in this book. There's a lot of funny stuff. Um, yeah, do you, why is humor so important? Oh, I think humor is so important. Uh, Joshu Suzaki Roshi uh, taught, I guess happened to be there one time when he said this, but he said, you know, meditation is great, but the best thing to do is to get up in the morning and start to laugh, fake it. You just, you know, <laughs> and, but you keep doing it until you actually start laughing. And he said, you laugh until the tears run down your face. Then you don't have to meditate for the rest of the day. That's all you need. Because first of all, laughter is a kind of Kundalini yoga, right? It's, it's that you're, you're laughing and you're, and you're, it's creating that kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, breath, the Kundalini yoga breath. Um, and then laughter shows you, you know, the absurdity of taking any of these belief systems literally. Mm. So it absolutely frees you from that. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the book is filled with, with jokes. The book is filled with, uh, you know, fake 
teachers that I made up and teachings that I made up. <laughs> and, and hopefully, and this is not the case, I, I guess thought people would be, they would know that these are jokes. Not everyone knows, you know, not everyone gets the jokes. But yeah, I tried to put in enough humor so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't get hung up on what I was saying and maybe experience what I'm pointing toward. Now, you mentioned that uh, we're the final arbiter of truth. Not, not everything else that they tell us. What do you mean? Well, I mean, two things, I think. One is from Lao Tzu, opening line of the Tao Te Ching, the Tao that can, that can be named is not the eternal Tao. The truth that can be articulated isn't really the truth. So there's that element that anything we say is true is always true with a lowercase t, never a capital case t. But in the world of lowercase t, you and I decide what's true. So there are, a, I don't know how many, what, 1.2 billion Christians on the planet who believe that God had a son. And I say, uh, no. I mean, you know, can, can 1.2 billion people be wrong? Or, you know, there's, there's a, a billion Muslims who say that, you know, Allah dictated the Holy Quran through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad, peace be upon him. Are they all wrong? And I go, well, yeah, actually, yes. So, so the individual just says whatever she or he thinks is true, and then they stand by it. But the only, there's, 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 no, there's no proof for any of it. It's just, okay, I say this is true. Therefore, it's true for me. And when anyone ever says, well, this is my truth, then I know that this is really, you're saying, this is just my opinion. Then I don't care. <laughs> you know, then it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to why you hold it. I'm curious as to what you think is true. I have compassion for the fact that you're mistaking your opinion for truth, but it's still an opinion. <laughs> well, Rabbi Rami, it's been so fun having you on. And I hope we'll be able to bring you back because there's so much more to talk about. Anytime. I love doing this. <laughs> you guys are great to talk with. Well, thanks for your holy ras rascality. Is that is that a good word, Sarah? Well, it's in the book, and I'm still working on pronouncing it. Rascality? Rascality. rascality. I think that's what I'm going to stick with. Rascality. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. You You're can find welcome. out more thanks about uh, Rabbi Rami at rabbiramiram.com. For more information about Sarah Bowen, go to spiritual-rebel.com. I've got premium video courses. Help to create them on my website called youthdrivehere.com. Thanks, everybody. I'm Jim Lefter here with Sarah Boat. We'll talk to you next time on Big Universe on Unity Online Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. <laughs>